Welcome to Supergirl's Attic. I'm Cycles. And I'm Vivi. And this is our companion episode for Dreamweaver, episode nine of season six of Supergirl. And the topic for this episode is reconsidering who has the power, whether it is, you know, the scary aliens or dangerous prisoners of this episode or not. And the way that systems such as family systems, foster prison media systems affect who has power and who has less power. And this episode establishes the ways that the non-main character aliens, so not like Sean and Kara or Nia, are potentially dangerous. We see Kara and Sean discover aliens are combined binding their powers to steal these bomb-making materials, which is a very like classic bad alien plot that mm. we might see from time to time in Supergirl yeah. and in other shows, you know. Even all the way back in the very beginning of the series with the Helgramite, mm. they thought that's what it was doing. Right, yes. And then we also see how characters working within working with power within assorted systems, such as Miss Hawkschild, the supervisor at the group home where Joey was staying, and Warden Coach at the prison. They say that Orlando and Joey and, you know, aliens generally in this episode are a threat to be protected against in assorted ways. Mm. So let's take a closer look at Joey in this episode, because a lot of interesting things happen with him. Joey being the little boy who Kelly was helping at the foster home. Miss Hawk's child says she's worried that someone might get hurt because of Joey's powers and requests help for Joey's behavioral issues is the term that Kelly uses. And behavioral issues is a fairly common like psych or just child care term. And it centers the kid's outward behavior and actions rather than their internal experience, which, you know, if taken to an extreme, such as we see in this episode, can become quite dehumanizing. And we see how misused behaviorism, which is a psychological theory that we've talked about on Supergirl's Attic before, permeates, say, our legal systems through policies like broken windows policing, which is a policy based around like maintaining order by policing low-level offenses with the goal of preventing more serious crimes, which then ends up leading to people being imprisoned for minor offenses, which does not turn out that great for the individual or the community. And then also stop and frisk, which is related to that same concept. And just generally the structure of punishing as opposed to helping, which is something that Kara tries to work against by supporting the work release program for the prisoners in this episode. But one of the reasons that these policies within the legal system fail is the way that they focus on controlling individuals as potential threats to the system, as opposed to, say, adapting systems to encourage the individuals. I have a quote here from the article, Behaviorism, Part of the Problem or Part of the Solution, which says, even when the problem behavior is as widespread as alcoholism and crime, behavior modifiers focus on fixing the alcoholic and the criminal, not on changing the societal contingencies that prevail outside the therapeutic environment and continue to produce alcoholics and criminals. Basically, focusing on the individual and, and trying to make them do certain things as opposed to fixing the system which created the problems in the individual in the first place. Mm. 
Yeah, and there's actually been a bunch of different experiments over the years that have found that the environment is as much a cause of behavior as any intrinsic qualities of the individuals within it. Mm -hmm. Well, with the behaviorism, all of it is trying to change the environment in order to affect the individual. But in the one model, it is about just trying to get a specific outcome from a person and trying to change them Mm. versus the other, which is to fix the system that is making a problem for a person and discovering what really needs adapting with regard to like an environment and trying to help somebody is why, say, a purely observational view of a person, as opposed to like asking them questions, is quite limited for actually helping them. The line that Carr says in this episode actually kind of reminds me of extreme behaviorism, which is they see the crime and not the person. Basically, they see the behavior, they see the output or the result of something a person does as opposed to the individual themselves. And so Hawk's child describes Joey's disruptive outward actions, like he's picking fights, he's disobeying me and my staff, misusing his powers, he caused a power outage, etc. Which was kind of interesting because it was very similar to one of the first introductions we had to Ruby in season three Hmm. when Sam got called over to school because Ruby was acting out and punched a kid in the face. And the principal's first question to Sam was, you know, well, what's going on at home? What is the context for this? We want to help Ruby. Like, what's going on? Yes. And none of that's present here. (laughs) No. No. With Huck's child, she sees this possible cause-effect relationship with Joey and Orlando, where Joey's going to visit his brother in prison, and then he comes back and he acts a certain way. And she wants to remove the thing that she sees as like this trigger, the thing that is causing it. And she says, I think it would be best if the state just stopped the visits. (laughs) And then it doesn't seem like she's actually talked to Joey about like how he feels about the situation, hasn't asked him why he's acting out in the same way that the principal was probing to see what the emotional cause behind Ruby's actions were. And Huck's child doesn't tell Kelly anything about his mood or like that he's been upset or anything like that. She says like that he's angry, but it is all very focused on his outward effect on the environment as opposed to his internal world. And there's a sense that he doesn't have a voice in it all. Which I thought was interesting in terms of these questions of power and with the way that the show has portrayed aliens in the past, where we see this pattern of the sacrificing of rights and autonomy of aliens so that those who actually do have power already, socially, typically, and in other ways, can feel secure. Yeah, and they start that pretty early on in the series. Think all the way back to Max Lord, even, Mm. and the creation of Bizarro and the Red Kryptonite. It was Mm -hmm. as a defense against his fear of aliens. Yeah. Then you see the introduction of Lena's alien detection device in season two, and she's very much, well, humans deserve to know Mm -hmm. who is an alien so that they can essentially protect themselves or separate themselves. Yeah. She says that's their right too. (laughs) the way that it's aliens rights to be citizens. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We also see it in season three through Alex with the DEO's approach to handling the world killers. 
Mm. Alex takes a very dehumanizing stance toward them, partially out of fear, especially after knowing that Rain nearly killed Kara Mm -hmm. in their first confrontation. And then when they go to find Julia, she ends up escalating the situation into violence by Mm -hmm. assuming that Julia would create violence to start with versus Kara, who kept insisting that they needed to see them as people and try to connect with them emotionally. Mm -hmm. And then just everything about season four. Uh, um, <laughs> Truly. You know, Lena's motivation for giving humans powers as a way to compensate for their insecurity. <laughs> like that next to aliens. Plan. Uh, I'm like, that's not going to fix anything. <laughs> everything to do with Lockwood and the Children of Liberty, again, coming out of this place of just fear and an anxiety about having or not having power mm-hmm. and status. The government's decisions with the Morai, so just deciding to kill them when they Mm -hmm. had no use for them anymore instead of doing something more humane and then that backfiring splendidly And then there's also just the general philosophy of the DEO as it existed from season one all the way through into season five, where Alex sums it up rather nicely in season two to Maggie, saying, I've been hunting aliens for so long that I never really stopped to consider that maybe they weren't all hostiles to be caged, which it's mm-hmm. like, Alex, your sister is an alien. <laughs> uh, maybe that should, that should have come first. Uh, <laughs> And that's where we see the seeds planted for what happens in season four. Yeah, exactly. But this is also kind of why the show rebooted the way the DEO was established in the world post-crisis, where it became associated openly then with Lex and some of the things Cadmus had done in the original Mm -hmm. timeline. And then they literally blew it up. So uh, (laughs) we will revisit that at a later point in this episode. Yes, yes. But to go back to Huck's child and her trying to control Joey and his powers in this episode so that she can feel safe. (laughs) We see she has the cameras that Kelly clocks and the power dampening cuffs that she's using on all the aliens that she's taking care of. And she says, Oh, that's a necessary precaution. I mean, with 10 alien children under my care, their abilities have to be controlled. When Joey gets angry, he can overpower his. Which is funny when you think about, you know, that time Kara almost zapped Alex with her eyes in the woods. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, having a a sort of emotional reaction where she's like, it happens when I get scared. Well, yeah, that and also that like Alex and Eliza never felt threatened, Mm -hmm. even despite Kara being essentially the most powerful alien on the planet (laughs) next to maybe Jean and Mm -hmm. then Call, obviously. But in this episode, we're introduced to the cuffs via these two cute little girls having an argument about their food, which, speaking of the Danvers sisters, was very, (laughs) very them. Yes. (laughs) But it's also important to recognize the significance of the choice that Joey is the one who is actively harmed Mm -hmm. with the power dampening cuffs on screen Mm -hmm. versus the other ones who were just shown having them kind of in the background. Because Hawkschild's actions embodied several different negative racial stereotypes in the way that they set up that scene and that power dynamic there. Mm -hmm. The first stereotype that is embodied in this scene is one that the American Psychological Association has talked about, which is the idea that black children aren't given their innocence to be children in the same way that children of other races are. Mm -hmm. And the research there will find that boys as young as Joey, so little ones, even nine, 10 years old, are more likely to be perceived as guilty 
when they are encountered by adults and they end up experiencing more violence as a consequence Mm -hmm. versus non-black children. Right. And we see her. She is physically harming him out of the concern that he might do something. Right. The presumption that he's guilty is there and the presumption that he will be harmful and she needs to react with force Mm -hmm. is there. And that ties into the second stereotype, which is the idea that black people have a higher pain tolerance Mm -hmm. and therefore can be treated more aggressively or with less compassion for their physical needs than others as a management strategy. Yeah. Kelly says, you're hurting him. And Hawkschild is like, no, I'm not. Like, <laughs> she dismisses the idea that she's actually hurting him. Yeah. She doesn't perceive him as like a little boy that she's actively physically harming and emotionally scarring in this moment. Mm-hmm. And this particular stereotype is incredibly harmful and it is pervasive all over the place, including within the medical community, which is why there is then such a gap in terms of people's treatment for health concerns. Mm -hmm. So the level of nuance in that scene was really nice. And it was actually the scene that we both were drawn to first when we started Mm -hmm. planning what we wanted to talk about. Yes, it was. So with Hawk's child, she acts like 10-year-old Joey is so dangerous and she's the vulnerable one and that she has to protect herself as if he is the one with like the power over her and that she has to fight back against it. Meanwhile, in reality, she, as the person who actually takes care of Joey, keeps him alive and orchestrates his daily life, has the real social power Mm. and, you know, circumstantial power. But she feels so threatened by his physical abilities that she has to take away what little, you know, power or agency that he does have. Which, you know, fittingly is often the mindset of someone who is abusive. They may say something like, you have so much power over me that I can't tolerate you going off and hanging out with people I don't approve of because it hurts me too much. Or like, I can't control my actions when I'm mad. Because of your behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Because of your behavior. And then also because I just don't have power over what I do. Mm. (laughs) So this sort of almost victim-like mindset resulting in an unhealthy level of control. Like even we see with Lillian bribing Lena's boyfriend when she was young to break up with her. Which then, to again, contrast with Kara, who's experienced as an alien growing up as someone who was very physically powerful mm-hmm. around people who were not. It reminded me of some of the conversations that we had when we looked at the Midvale episode in kind of close detail. And the scene, one of the ones that I absolutely adored was when Eliza's like, no, you need to go to school. Uh, <laughs> and she just says it in like mom voice. And Kara's like, oh, fine. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. And they both know, and Alex knows this too, that's why she always has this anxiety that like if Kara wanted to, Kara could could leave. <laughs> but Eliza has exerted her influence as a caregiver mm-hmm. in a way that Kara respects. And so she does listen, even though maybe within the Midvale episode, Eliza reaches her limit and she has to call in the fake FBI agent <laughs> to be like, please convince her yes. to stop doing dangerous things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's about, you know, convincing her and <laughs> yeah. appealing to her as a person who she recognizes has the ability to make decisions. (laughs) Well, and then in terms of seeing Kara as a person, think about what Eliza says to Alex early in season one. Like, I just saw this little girl who needed someone to love her Mm -hmm. versus what we see here. Yeah, quite different. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And the very different circumstances of different effects on, say, Kara versus Joey. Yeah. (laughs) Who In this episode, I thought it was interesting. We can kind of see the beginnings or, or hints of what I think is a dismissive avoidant attachment style. 
which is an attachment style that we've talked about before, in particular in our Alex in Wonderland video essay. And a dismissive avoidant attachment style is one where a person has sort of given up on seeking help or having their needs met in a parent or then in adulthood, their other loved ones. So with Joey, we see that when Kelly tries to talk to him, you know, his face is just trained on the book that is in front of him. His little comic book. His comic book, yes. (laughs) That was a nice little detail. That was cute. It was. It was a nice prop. But Joey's eyes aren't like moving like he's genuinely just ignoring Kelly and reading (laughs) and not paying attention to her. He's just staring forward. So he's obviously like just aware that she's there, but doesn't want to interact with her. And I think it's sort of interesting seeing that dynamic where he's very still and just kind of aware that he's being watched and spoken to, but not interacting with her. Relevant to know that he's constantly being watched by cameras in this house. Mm, Yeah. In terms of thinking about how he could get to this place. I actually liked the little inclusion of the cameras just for the tie-in to kind of the tech issues from season five. But it was a little bit more of a nuanced way of Mm -hmm. adding it in. And then they sneak it in again later with Kelly, which we'll talk about. Yes. Well, and then also the cuffs, you know. Oh, (laughs) yeah, true. That's also, Mm. yeah. And then that's actually something they had established in previous seasons because there were the power dampeners on Shelly Island and then the Mm -hmm. cuffs when Lex was kidnapping all the aliens. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. But for Joey, in terms of this dismissive avoidant attachment style, Kelly says to him, talking about it always seems to help. And he does not respond. (laughs) He's like, no, thank you, strange lady. I don't know. (laughs) Yes. Well, he doesn't reach out for help, even though he's clearly feeling upset and maybe hopeless or powerless. And when Huck's child stops hurting Joey with the cuffs in the later scene, he stands up and looks at Kelly, who is looking up at him with this very like open, empathetic concern on her face. And it is just heartbreaking to see him immediately like turn his face away first and then run like he can't stand it. Which reminded me of Alex in our Alex in Wonderland video essay, who we have argued has a dismissive avoidant attachment style. She has a similar reaction in Alex in Wonderland also to Kelly, who says, but just know that I love you and I'm here for you unconditionally. And then Alex gets sort of more upset and like puts her hand up to wave Kelly away from her. Like it's more distressing to be confronted with like unconditional love when you are in this state where you feel like you can't actually access help. Alex is like, no, it's me being mad at me hours. None of of this. (laughs) Yes. And Kelly says actually a similar thing to Joey that she does to Alex. You know, I have had a lot of loss. I know how you feel. And then Alex is like, you have no idea how I feel. And here, Joey says to Kelly, you don't know how I feel. And Kelly's like, you could tell me. (laughs) Just showing that sort of similar mindset that the two characters have. Mm. And just showing how in both of them, with dismissive avoidant attachment style, you've lost trust in the idea that your needs will be met by your parents and loved ones where we're seeing this relationship with Huck's child really affecting Joey and and pushing him to be in that place. I mean, we don't know the Mm. full extent of his little life's experiences, but I do argue that a lot of it has to do with Huck's child. The other thing to keep in mind is that this kind of behavior is also very common in 
children who have dealt with abuse Mm -hmm. because that puts them in a position where someone that is a trusted authority figure is harming them and then they are reluctant to trust other authority figures out of fear that the same thing will happen or that they will be blamed. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of perpetuates. Yeah. Where trying to get your needs met can result in harm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It can be very hard and take a very long time to undo, as we've seen with Lena. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, but it is a good thing that Kelly's here. <laughs> as Alex says, she has a superpower that is empathy. That was a great scene. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It comes in handy for Joey because of his specific circumstance where that sort of dehumanization and not considering of his feelings is happening with Hawkschild. Whereas Kelly is on both Joey and Orlando. Orlando's side take in the scene where she's updating the team about this potential situation at the prison where Orlando is using his powers. Alex says, is it because he's being forced to or maybe he's using them for some self-serving purpose? And Kelly says, either way, something bad is happening to Orlando, which I thought was a nice sort of recentering of even if he's using it for some self-serving purpose, we have to help him. Mm. And then with Joey, the first thing that Kelly does is ask him about his internal world. And she also reflects what she observes about it back at him when he's not, you know, offering up information freely. She says, and by the look on your face when I said his name, Orlando, you must care about him an awful lot. And she shares stuff about herself that he can relate to, her relationship with her brother, Jimmy, as she says. And Kelly says about her relationship with her brother, one time he took our dad's car for a ride. And then I thought it was interesting here how Joey looks up at that point, because I think offering up this bit of information where James, you know, stole their dad's car and took it for a ride is both effective in terms of like, it's a dramatic thing in the story of her brother Mm. that offers an opportunity for Joey to engage with the story. Mm. But it is also an example of a time her brother like broke the rules and you know she thinks about it affectionately she doesn't stop treating him like her brother he doesn't become yeah. dehumanized because he did something wrong making her a potentially more trustworthy figure for joey and she says finally my brother is the bravest person i know and i still worry about him which is obviously how joey is feeling in this moment what she catches on to and then joey opens up and kelly's able to actually address the problem that he is facing as opposed to like controlling joey the way that Hawkschild is trying to. And then, like we mentioned, Kelly catches Hawkschild hurting Joey with the cuffs, which I appreciated in terms of how obviously wrong it was in the narrative, mm. because one could make an argument, and we've seen viewers who have done so, that she was just protecting herself, but that ignores the responsibility that she has as his caretaker, whereas the storyline does not ignore that. And the like police brutality comparisons in terms of this narrative of responsibility versus like protecting yourself are not difficult to make. <laughs> and in this scene, Kelly rushes over to Joey and when he says it hurts, she amplifies his voice and, and speaks to Hawkschild, says he's in pain. And compare this to Hawkschild's very behavior driven in this moment. <laughs> Actions have consequences and like trying to teach him a lesson about, you know, not using his powers in an incredibly unproductive way. Yeah. And Kelly says he's obviously terrified talking about his internal state about his brother. And this is how you treat him. Yeah. 
This episode was also, for me, just really interesting to watch, given a lot of my work experiences and different things that I've done from college all the way up through now, because I've done a lot of work in different realms of education and working with kids. Mm-hmm. And in the scene with Kelly versus the foster care worker who is being so horrible, it reminded me actually of something that happened very early on when I started working in specifically Black communities. I had a friend who we were both in this volunteer program in college, and we were working with like sixth and seventh graders. And the one day, my friend, he and this one boy who was like 12 years old, just got into a really intense argument with each other in the middle of a room full of kids. There was profanity. <laughs> like <laughs> There were a lot of just tempers flaring. And it was a struggle over authority and power within the classroom space mm. and how this kid felt like he was not being seen or, or was being talked down to mm-hmm. in a way that was upsetting to him because you know, my friend as a white guy and this little boy who's black it was just very upsetting Mm -hmm. and so we had the kid go kind of take a walk to cool down I pulled my friend out and I was like dude what are you doing (laughs) he's a kid you can't take it personally when he gets mad at you it's not about you (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then I sat with this kid afterwards and I was like what's going on like what is happening because you know I don't ever have these kind of conflicts with you so what's the problem and how can we fix it and I remember what he said to me because it was so striking. And he was like, well, but you say thank you. You ask me to do things. You don't just order me to do them. And I was like 20 when this happened. <laughs> and I have never forgotten it because it's just such a simple thing related to word choice and just recognizing that people are people mm-hmm. and how much that can impact an entire power dynamic. Mm -hmm. And the way that people will respect you and the influence that you can have and the impact that you can make. Yeah. So despite being in a position of power, maybe over someone in a social situation, especially kids, Mm. there's this thread of like respecting their own personhood and and ability to make decisions and the power that they do have, like with Kelly and and your experience in the world. (laughs) And we also see that with James, actually, as guardian Mm. in season two with another little boy. There was Marcus, what's his name, from the episode City of Lost Children at the end of season two. Mm -hmm. And he was also a little alien child who potentially had very dangerous powers. They found him because something Lena was doing was affecting this whole group of aliens Hmm. psychically, and they were causing damage to the whole city. Mm -hmm. And when you contrast that, James going and intervening in that scene where it is immediately dangerous to him, Mm -hmm. and yet he's trying to reach this kid emotionally and soothe his fears and say, you know, I'm here, I'm with you, you're okay, as a way of mitigating the threat, as opposed to what is happening in this episode with Mm -hmm. the power dampening cuffs physically hurting Joey. It's a nice through line on kind of Kelly reflecting on James and looking up to him as a hero and then what we see for her at the end of the episode. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, and speaking of, you know, the power dampening cuffs, Mm. there's this interesting sort of motif, I would say, but it's also just relevant to like real world experiences for black men and black boys. In this episode, we have Joey's caretaker using these painful power dampening cuffs on him. And we also see the for-profit prison taking advantage of Orlando and putting him in danger and then using power dampening cuffs on him. Mm. 
And it just reminds me, especially because A, we have Kelly picking up the mantle as guardian and B, the way that she alluded to Jimmy, as she said in this episode, of when James talked about cuffs being put on him when he was seven years old. You know, again, going back to that idea of little boys, especially if they are black, Mm -hmm. do not get to be children in the eyes of systems. Yeah. He says, my arms were so little they had to put them around my forearms. And then they marched us into the hotel lobby like a bunch of criminals. And there's this idea of like black men and boys are criminals. Black men are dangerous or threatening. And James grappled with that perception as an adult, as guardian. Mm, Yeah. And one of the most flagrant examples Mm. was the one where the members of the cult of Rao start attacking people and James intervenes and gets shot in the face (laughs) by the blonde girl at like point blank range to the point that it knocks his helmet off. And yet he is the one who is stopped by the police Mm -hmm. and Olivia, the girl, plays scared for sympathy in the way that we see, you know, now that people are conscious of it and video mm-hmm. with the big teary eyes. And, and then she and her companion run away, even though they have guns in their hands <laughs> and yeah. are clearly the ones responsible. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's also just generally the perception of Guardian as like not a protector and that James had difficulties with compared to, say, Supergirl. And at the time he had like his whole suit on and like they couldn't tell that he was a black man. But thematically, he was still dealing with that. And it was frustrating for him because like he expressed when he talked about the cuffs being put on him, being guardian was the way that he could be seen for who he is as opposed to like being judged for being a black man. And you know, it's really terrible. The time that he was really embraced as guardian, it was by like a white supremacy (sighs) group. (laughs) I know. Because they looked at him as, like, better than the aliens. Mm -hmm. Human exceptionalism. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't because they liked him Mm -hmm. or that they particularly cared about him. It was just that he wasn't this other thing that they hated more. Right. Yes. (laughs) Well, but we also did see in that same episode the fanatical Mm. where he was shot in the helmet. Oh, right. The girl. The girl who had been in the Coville cult who really looked up to him. Yeah. Specifically him. (laughs) And like James says, you know, it's like that for every seven-year-old boy who looks like me, referring to being, you know, assumed to be a criminal as a child. But it's not going to be like that if I have something to do with it. And this idea culminates for James and his arc in him moving to his and Kelly's hometown to fight against another for-profit prison that was preying upon the town. And then, you know, speaking of James, when they go back to Calvintown in early season five and Kelly is there with him, we also see kind of a hint of her character and what's coming for her now in the way that she also steps in when they find, you know, the boys who'd been staying in their aunt's house. And then she sees the one kid getting harassed in the store Mm-hmm. because he's potentially stealing and she intervenes on his behalf and helps him because she asks, you know, what's going on? Why is this happening? Mm-hmm. And she's, you know, empathetic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As she is. Yeah. As she is. And ultimately, Kelly makes the decision to become guardian and, you know, continues that legacy that James started of protecting those that the system sees as a threat, like the people in their hometown, like James as a kid, like Joey. And in terms of this theme of who has power and the responsibility you have as someone who is in a position of power, we see Kara as someone who has a lot of power, like relative to 
other aliens and as Supergirl, especially, and also as the reporter Cara Danvers at this point in her career. She believes that she has power and she takes it very seriously. And we see in this episode the way that that is contrasted with Andrea, who has power <laughs> in terms of like owning Kako, but cares just about ratings. And Kara <laughs> is not happy about that. But ratings are a form of power. Um, yeah, well, that is the journey that she has to go on, Kara, <laughs> of accepting. That's true. <laughs> but Andrea is doing it for the end goal of having the good ratings. And then we also see the warden who just cares about money is what Kara discovers. She's like, well, I guess what they say is true. Follow the money. Deeply upset about it. Grappling with capitalism in this episode. But Kara takes risks, kind of like Alex phrases it in this episode, mm. when it comes to helping others. Frequently in terms of like trying to relate to the villains or antagonists of the episode. Like she initially did with Nixley right. when she was in the Phantom Zone. Yes. And she takes the risk of like putting herself in danger. And sometimes other people, <laughs> sometimes Earth. <laughs> that didn't sound critical at all. <laughs> like with Raya in season two. Mm, true. When she was like, yeah, we can have this fight to the death. <laughs> yes. Well, she, she takes the chance in order to reach a person, even if it is dangerous for herself or for other people, because of a bit of trust and then also some faith in her own power. And like in this episode, how she deactivates the alien prisoners, power dampening coughs, including Orlando, immediately, as opposed to like taking advantage of the fact that they can't use their powers and bringing them back to the prison. She instead wants to like enlist them in the common goal of going back and clearing the air. She doesn't try to take away their power that they have in order to stay safe in the way that we see Hawk's child do. Because she is aware of her position of power and has a certain opinion of what that's supposed to mean. And ultimately, the power that she doesn't take from them makes it better because they're allowed to protest or, or like leverage the position they're in because they have their physical alien powers. They can potentially fight their way out. And Kara ends up learning from it and tries harder to help them because of it. Mm. And both parties end up in a better place than they were because she didn't just keep the cuffs on them the whole time. So we see across these stories the ways that the understanding of the power that you do have, as opposed to maybe positioning yourself as a victim, can improve upon the situation <laughs> in terms of Kelly, Hawk's child, and then Kara and Orlando. And then another theme that was interesting in this episode related to like reconsidering where the power is, <laughs> mm. is this idea of whether or not you work within the system, outside of the system, or both, as we see <laughs> a couple of the characters do. Yeah. So one thing that we have seen portrayed periodically throughout the show is this idea that traditional power systems are hard to access, usually by design, for groups that are deemed unworthy of that access. So like in real life, for example, entering politics is typically very difficult if you're from like a marginalized group because it costs a lot of money. It requires mm -hmm. a lot of social capital and connections. And then you also have to have fluency in this specific microculture in order to succeed. And within the world of the show, we saw this very nicely in season four, for example, when Ben Lockwood is trying to get access to Lena to ask for her help after their steel business kind of goes under mm -hmm. 
And it's at the point before he goes off the deep end into extremism. And there might have been a moment to turn things around and prevent Mm. all of what happens with the Children of Liberty. So you see very nicely, you know, the impact of class and wealth on access to power at that level and the idea of the corporate power structure and how it puts distance between Mm. the haves and the have-nots, essentially. (laughs) And then with that in mind, when people are left out of the mainstream power structures of society, they tend to create systems of their own in order to get their needs met Mm. or needs addressed when they feel like society has kind of abandoned them or is ignoring them. In the show, you see, again, thinking to season four, which was the last time they really delved into this a lot, Mm -hmm. We see hints of this, that there is an alien kind of like an underground community that looks out for itself. We see like the therapy group for aliens. Mm -hmm. We see that they have their own app for like contacting Supergirl. (laughs) There's the safe houses that get discovered by the Children of Liberty, like at Al's Bar. The recognition of Jean as a community leader because he's not the law, essentially. <laughs> you know, Kara's like, well, why didn't you go to the police to some of the aliens? But Jean knows the system because he used to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. And he can get results and help people without putting them at risk. And then on the other hand, <laughs> you also had the Children of Liberty as people who felt like a system was abandoning them because their social and economic needs in the wake of all these alien attacks were being ignored. So again, thinking of lack of access to power or to systems, trying to go to Catco and appeal to James and say, hey, people are still suffering. Mm -hmm. Can you shed some light on that? Get some help for people? Not really getting acknowledgement for the trauma of people seeing their houses burned down (laughs) or the damages that they've suffered both monetarily and emotionally. Mm -hmm. Of course, that goes in a very different direction, which is not pro-social in any way. And related to that, you have vigilantes. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of funny because Kara is like a little bit disdainful of vigilantes, at least (laughs) when we see her early on in the series. Mm-hmm. even though she kind of is one. And- <laughs> yeah, I think it's more about them being like human and vulnerable. Yeah, but there's like a tone when she references Batman a yeah, little bit. It's also Batman, so like <laughs> she's fair. <laughs> Thank you for that burn of Batman. Um, taking that Batman-Superman rivalry and just bringing it right on over. Um, her loyalty to Clark is very strong. We like Batwoman though. So. <laughs> That's fair. Um, but yeah, Vigilantes are an interesting gray area (laughs) because the presence of vigilantes, you know, comes as an outgrowth of this feeling like some people have been abandoned by a particular social system or support system Mm -hmm. that they think they should have or that they need. And that part of it is kind of interesting because the era that gave us the superheroes originally, so like the era of the Great Depression leading into World War II, Mm -hmm. was a time when actually many people in society did feel either shut out of social networks or completely disempowered because there was a huge economic crisis. There were Mm -hmm. environmental crises like the Dust Bowl. You had a massive marginalization of immigrants based on ethnicity. The KKK had come to prominence. And so there was a lot of almost worse racial violence than there had been in the generation after the Civil War in the States. Mm. And so it makes sense then that you have all this media coming out of the generation living through that 
with these characters who maybe have great physical power mm-hmm. that can lead to the social power that is lacking in some of these groups and that these heroes can subvert those systems that don't see you mm-hmm. and still affect change in a way that's meaningful for people. Yeah, like Superman going after a corrupt landlord or, you know, stopping an abusive husband, etc. And there's very early action comics. Mm, yeah. So it makes sense that vigilantes are popular and they are, again, popular at this moment in our history when there is so much instability and insecurity and people feeling lost mm. and unseen and unheard. But that said, it's great that you can work outside of a system and you've got a lot of leeway, but it's still important to have some people participate within the systems, get that visibility and that legitimacy, because that's the only way that the system will ever change. Mm -hmm. Such as we saw with John Lewis, civil rights activist turned United States representative. Yeah. And it's good that you brought up John Lewis as an example, because we've entered an era where the idea that you can actually have an impact Mm -hmm. within a traditional power system is frowned upon. It is certainly contested. (laughs) Yes. There's a lot of just general negativity about the ability of individuals to make change. There's a lot of cynicism and almost this idea that it's hopeless to try to do anything. And some of this is due to just generations now of this messaging where there's been a devaluing of public service to the point that it has put off a lot of people who would want to go into, you know, working in the government education and left kind of this empty vacuum for leadership. And that's how you get to governments that are full of corruption and people who make bad decisions and bad laws. And there's no one there who's stopping them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then you also consider the messaging to marginalized communities about like, you know, your vote doesn't matter. Like, it's hopeless. Why bother? But within this idea of whether or not it's beneficial to work within the system, particularly if you maybe belong to a group that it's hard for you to get access to the system. There's also an interesting kind of intersection of how we perceive our own identity and our relative social power or social standing. So there was this article that came out from the University of Michigan Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation that looked at a whole bunch of different studies on the intersection of race and health and resiliency across people of different age groups, both over an extended period of time and then just in like short term studies. And it found that although white Americans are, on average, the healthiest group in the United States, they are also, on average, far less resilient specifically than black Americans in terms of mental health, which is interesting because Supergirl has looked at this a little bit. (laughs) But one of the explanations that the author of the article offers is that people who are accustomed to having all the systems in society designed to accommodate them and make things easy for them tend to have less of an ability to cope when they do encounter a roadblock or a barrier, even if it's temporary. Whereas people who encounter systemic adversity on a regular basis will tend to have stronger coping mechanisms when confronted by a challenge. Which then maybe leads to almost counterintuitively like a more hopeful (laughs) attitude that, you know, yeah, I can get through this. I can find a way around this. Mm -hmm. But it's important to bring that up because we've seen a perception 
in the wake of this episode airing that they got everything wrong, that Mm -hmm. the ending was naive, that they think they solved the problems. (laughs) And that is not at all what this episode was saying. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. But also, as the point of some of this research has shown, like thinking that you still have power to do something is actually healthier than just laying down and giving up. <laughs> yeah, it's it's resiliency. And that's very yeah. much like why Kara is someone to look up to with her whole, you know, hope, help, compassion motto centering around like she went through hardship and then every day approaches the world as if there's like something that you can do to make things better. Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, taking a look at systems and the super friends and the ways that they try to affect change and how they all in various ways identify with marginalized groups and how they try to affect change by using both these existing social systems and then that classic vigilante going around them (laughs) a little bit. (laughs) Yes. And we've talked about this a little bit before because Alex is the character we've tended to see do this the most often. Often, (laughs) thinking about her context as a character, she's historically worked within very established systems like Mm -hmm. medicine and then joining the DEO, which is a paramilitary organization. But she will also subvert them when she decides that it is necessary, which (laughs) Jean did not care for. (laughs) And this was especially evident in her storyline in season four when she was finally at the DEO on her own without either Jean or Kara as an influence over what she should do. And it gave us a much better look at her principles as a character outside of her value of I need to protect my family. We got to really kind of see more distinct lines on what things matter to her in terms of just being a hero. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of nice then in this episode that she is the one who spots Kelly's emergent hero's journey (laughs) Um, (laughs) just because she spent so much of season five adjusting to working outside of a system officially instead of being enmeshed in one and kind of creating one of her own, which is kind of fun because the papers that Andrea finds in Lex's office suggest that maybe Sentinel is one of the leaders of this little band of vigilantes. <laughs> I like to think that the trio sort of co-leads it like they're... Yeah, <laughs> they're collaborate. They collaborate. They offer different kinds of leadership. Yep. And then... Kind of like Alex, Kelly has similarly been drawn to roles in service that are embedded within larger systems, such as the military. Mm -hmm. She was doing corporate research and development with Obsidian and now social work. Hmm. Even though she's mentioned that she's encountered barriers and difficulties within all of these systems, she was very profoundly affected by the military's don't ask, don't tell policy. Mm -hmm. She was ethically conflicted over what was going on at Obsidian with the way the technology was harming people. And she tried to fix it and like her efforts did not work out. Yeah, you know, she followed the rules and put in the requests to patch the problems and then that did not Mm -hmm. happen. And Then they had to go around it. And then it's her first day on this new job as a social worker, and she's dealing with, like, racism and anti-alien prejudice in the (laughs) foster system. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a nice piece of character work to show that these things are inescapable Mm -hmm. and that the characters do have to work through them and around them. Mm Mm-hmm. And speaking of working around them, there were a couple really nice things that Kelly did in this episode, such as repurposing her obsidian tech, <laughs> which is questionable as to whether or not she should. We love a MacGyver. <laughs> yeah. 
We also love a good prop detail because that was very subtle. Mm -hmm. So she uses her apps from when she worked for Andrea to access the camera feed at the group home and get the video of Joey being physically abused. And then she submitted the video to higher ups within the foster care system, which Mm -hmm. is fulfilling her role technically as a mandatory reporter of abuse, but also going around any roadblocks that she might hit because Mm -hmm. what she did to get the video was (laughs) definitely not legal. Yes, Uh, (laughs) but she definitely uses the system in order to get this woman out of the position she's in. Yeah. Well, and to kind of go back to something that I've said before with Alex, like you can't manipulate a system you don't understand. Mm -hmm. So you do need to know how it works and be a part of it in Mm -hmm. order to know where to exploit it for good. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. She's also recognized that the video will absolutely be necessary because of the racial power imbalance between the person running the comb, who is white, herself, and then Joey. Mm -hmm. So it was a nice twist on, you know, picks or it didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) And then in terms of other characters and their relationship with using systems or going around them. We have Kara who likes to do what she wants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll see Kara like work within systems. Mm, particularly emergency services. Right. Yes. But she's also inclined to work in sort of this freer adjacent space where like her relationship with the DEO for a while was quite nebulous. Like what kind of obligation does she have with them? Was she getting paid? At some points we weren't sure. But there's a sense of like Kara is this separate entity that teams up with the DEO as opposed to like is another agent. And then as a reporter, Kara in season two fully separated from Kako because she felt obligated to publish a story about the aliens being captured by Cadmus before like having all her sources in order in order to protect the people and then was trying for a bit to function outside of Kako entirely. But then when she obviously comes back to Kako and is a reporter, there is a certain amount of flexibility there where she kind of gets to chase leads and and fly around as Supergirl, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is a little bit easier when she has like a friend who's her boss, but can get difficult with, say, Lena or Andrea. Yeah. And in this episode, we see Kara like sneak onto the computer at the prison initially in order to fake that they had made an appointment two weeks ago. (laughs) So they could go and see Orlando, but then instead using the information she found there to then basically like fly, stalk (laughs) Orlando and the quote unquote work release program. Yeah, that was not not quite that in a very non-official capacity. And in that way, like subverting the system of the prison and like you have to make a set meeting. But then Kara uses that information. First is Kara Danvers, the reporter, when she's interacting with the warden. Mm. And she initially is trying to inform him and affect the system that way and is kind of a built in check on the system as a journalist. And then finally, as Supergirl. She uses that information as this beloved authority figure within like the media system that Andrea is trying to capitalize on, mm. emphasis on capitalize, yeah. <laughs> and using her advantage to do something positive. Yeah. Well, and also to like keep her word to the aliens that she rescued. Mm-hmm. Yes. Trying to make the system a little bit better, at least for this group of people. 
kind of like the work release program was supposed to do initially. Hmm. Yeah. And then related to this idea of being within a system or outside of a system and also how much harm or good that can do. There was also obviously over the very long break during the pandemic, some reconsidering on kind of the messaging that the show was sending along those lines. Mm. As I had said earlier about the DEO, there clearly has been some recognition that keeping those characters tied to the DEO as an organization that originally hunted aliens has been kind of undercutting the messaging about aliens (laughs) (laughs) and also politics and then power and how it's used by the main characters. Yeah. And they've tried to make it a little bit better every season. Yeah. Where there's it's like, you know, Jean is like, we don't use lethal weapons anymore and assorted steps in that way. And then using it as sort of an antagonistic force with Haley as the head, but then ultimately culminating in this decision to just dismantle it as far as the main characters are concerned. Yeah. And it's been nice, actually, then to see the shift this season where they go back to Catco mm. more and looking at that role that media plays in shaping perceptions and causing change in society. Mm-hmm. And it's been also nice to see Kara kind of finding that balance of being able to use both and also now use both in concert with each other. Yeah, that was fun this episode. Well, that wraps up our topic thoughts (laughs) related to power and systems and reconsidering them. And now we have some little observations about the episode that are unrelated, such as Kara and Kelly teaming up. Yeah, we were both very excited for this episode for that (laughs) reason. And it was a lot of fun to see them work together. Yeah, it was. It was also nice to see them have distinctive types of interpersonal skills Mm. because, you know, they both have similar superpowers in that sense where for Kelly, it's empathy. Like Alex says, Mm, yeah, feeling what the other person is feeling, which actually reminds me of that time. She was like, your dad is a narcissist (laughs) to Andrea, which I'm like, oh, if you're a big, like empathetic person, that makes a little bit more sense where she's like overcome with like, I'm upset by what your father did to you. (laughs) And then in the similar way, with Joey when he says like what if he dies Kelly's like overcome with empathy and says I'm going to do all that I can to help you in Orlando and then you know she's like sharing their feelings which that moment where Kelly was like I'm going to help you was actually that was quite very Cara. Cara. <laughs> yes and for Kara, her superpower is, among others, <laughs> compassion, which is more a concern for the experience of others in a way that is closely related to action. And I mean, they both have both. Yes. <laughs> compassion. But Kara leads with like trying to fix things and Kelly leads with empathizing. I thought a good example would be the way that Kelly ran to comfort Joey when Hawkchild was using the cuffs on him. Whereas I think Kara might have just taken the remote from her immediately. Just a different way of approaching a problem. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. And some of that's related to like them as people, but some of it is also a little bit related to race and how their actions would be perceived by others. Mm -hmm. Like Jean pointed this out to Kara way back in season one, that she will come across as inherently friendly or trustworthy because of her appearance in ways that other characters maybe don't. Mm -hmm. So Kara has room to act more immediately without her authority being called into question or without being met with a very intense negative response for acting. Mm, Yes. 
But then, you know, it is interesting in a sort of analogy, intersectionality way with Kara as an alien since, you know, Kara Danvers, since her childhood, had to reign in her powers and strength and emotions and that alienness do not appear threatening in a similar way. And then also personality wise, I think it fits. It's like, mm, yeah. Kelly, safe option, Olsen. <laughs> like she says in season four when James is not doing so well in the hospital. She's like, I yeah. chose the safe option. But you compare her, you know, the way that she moves in the world versus James, who is more of a risk taker. Yeah. And who she feared for. And I think that played a role in her being a more conscientious type personality. Mm. And then Kara is just a very <laughs> intense, like, Gryffindor, I have passion energy. <laughs> yes. And then separately, we did not talk about Nia in this particular episode because a lot of her stuff was set up for next week. So we will talk about Nia in a lot more depth at that point. But mm -hmm. Nia in this episode, we see her interacting with Nixley and she definitely wants to believe her. <laughs> In a similar way to like how Kara wants to believe in the warden in the episode where, mm, you know, yeah. she put her faith in him and like, this is such a great program and like, I know him from before. And in both situations, there's a moment where the warden lashes out and a moment where Nixley like lashes out and like this sense of like my control over you is slipping away. And there's a last ditch effort to be like, no, you can't. But then Kara and Nia have very different reactions and make different choices. Where Kara is trusting her read of the situation and Nia is not and then also, you know, kind of wants what she is being offered. Yeah. I mean, I think Nia knew perfectly well that she was making a little bit of a devil's bargain. <laughs> <laughs> but also the part where the owl is like, don't listen to others, listen to yourself or something like that. Speaking of that owl... Um... <laughs> I was not prepared for that thing to talk. It, it changed me as a person. <laughs> she hasn't been the same, guys. I have not. Just a little unsettled. And then let's see. Other fun things in this episode. Esme had some amusing energy to her that I feel like Kara will find relatable. <laughs> I think Alex will also have some... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is true. I did say that that argument over the food had some Kara and Alex fighting yeah. over pot stickers energy. Mm -hmm. So excited to see kind of more with the little children because we know Joey will be back and so will the other little ones. Mm -hmm. And then for other characters, we have Andrea, whose superhero board was weirdly endearing. Like, <laughs> I think I like this character the most that I have. Yeah. I appreciate that she like sat there and wrote all these little details about the super friends on the board. She was just so genuinely excited. We need to put her like intense energy in like a positive direction. That's all. We just need to direct it in a nice place. Kara will, I think, find a way because Kara does not want to go through this experience again <laughs> after her whole ordeal getting Kat to stop. Uh, <laughs> so I'm curious to see if like having Nia as a co-conspirator will help or make it worse. <laughs> and then how William is going to get dragged into this mix. <laughs> It's a time. It is a time. The, her face in that scene, though, was so good. <laughs> Work has become a stressful place for her. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I didn't need this on my first day back. It's okay. <laughs> Speaking of Kara, well, not just Kara, but I'll start with Kara. This episode, I would like to give a particular shout out to the wardrobe team because 
I don't usually come away from episode being like, wow, everyone looked really nice. But uh, they did. <laughs> so <laughs> this was really the first episode where things were like back to normal-ish. Mm-hmm. And we got to see the characters in a variety of settings instead of just in the suits, mm-hmm. which was really fun. So I'm going to give them all scores. <laughs> Here we go. First of all, we have Nia. I'm going to shout out her Disney princess vibe with her dress. Mm-hmm. Loved it. Looked very elegant. Reminded me of her fake prom dress from earlier this season. <laughs> I see. It was really great. I would take a point off maybe for her not dreaming herself with some shoes. <laughs> She's running through the woods. It's dangerous, man. She might step on something sharp. I mean, those trees were coming for her dress as it was. <laughs> so like a 12 out of 10 for, Nia. for Nia's top outfit. Right. That's good. That's pretty good. Let's see. Oh, then Kara. Um... Kara, they've been making this very interesting choice ever since she came back from the Phantom Zone to have her in these very, like, cozy, warm outfits that are kind of like they're hugging her a little bit for emotional support. Um, (laughs) Yes. I mean, the other characters, they're kind of warm clothing because, you know, when this was filmed, it was not Yeah, it was winter in Vancouver. Like, (laughs) not summer. Yeah. But Kara is quite the most cozy yeah well but my specific outfit i am choosing for Kara is her dress that she wore at catco in this episode the one that was like the multicolors with kind of these bluish accents mm. number one the color was just very pretty and number two it had like a nice like warm fabric texture that <laughs> said i'm still not okay but i need to look like a professional <laughs> news anchor <laughs> I want to be in a blanket now, and I don't yes. ever want to be outside of it, but I have to go to work. Correct. And also, she had one of the coolest hairstyles that she's had on the series, so I yeah. will give Kara a 14 out of 10. That's good. A favorite ponytail, I will say, yes. that I've ever seen on Kara Danvers. It was a good one. Let's see. Alex, I'm going to shout out Alex's nice, like, light gray tie-dye sweatshirt with the little off-shoulder <laughs> thing that was going on at the beginning mm-hmm. of the episode. Mm-hmm. The costume choice was, like, a nice representation of Alex kind of becoming a little more chill as a person. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Fitting into her new place. Yeah. A little bit better, which is slightly brighter, but still has like Alex touches. Exactly. It still was in like her color palette, which is more neutral, but it was like a brighter neutral Mm kind of telling you that things are getting a little better there. So I'll give Alex like a 13 out of 10 for growth (laughs) on an emotional level. And Kelly bringing a little bit of that brightness energy. Yes. Speaking of Kelly, I will shout out Kelly's first day of work outfit. Yes, yes. Very good. Number one, the blazer was very nice. Projecting authority, (laughs) a little bit of armor there for the uh, Mm. dealing with all the stress. But also the blouse that she had on had some nice like earth tones, like nice connection to Mm -hmm. uh, the Martian colors that Jean likes to wear a lot. Nice. And he did say in this episode, sure you guys aren't reading each other's minds. (laughs) That is very true. So also Kelly accessorized. She had a nice handbag with her Mm. and jeans you know to make it like serious but also she's casual and approachable because she's hanging out with children you know you got to have something that you can get down crawl on the floor something might Mm -hmm. spill on you Mm -hmm. you got to be ready so (laughs) and then of course she was wearing her empathy (laughs) (laughs) yes so uh kelly also gets a 14 out of 10 that's fair That's good. She deserved it for being the hero of this episode. Mm. And last but not least, we have Andrea, who was rocking this, like, I'm a cool goth girl vibe. And... Go on. She has she she keeps doing like her signature black, like to remind you that she's a Krata, but not. 
But also she's got like some good earrings. We had the hair looking very nice to convey her enthusiasm for her new pitch to make the super friends like the coolest celebrities <laughs> in National City. She's like, I have shadow powers, but like also I have money, you know? <laughs> That's right. It's like I'm a superhero, but I also have class in my non-superhero time. Yes. That or you could argue that she's dressing up in the hope of introducing herself to the superheroes so that she can join them. She wants to join them. That's what this is all about. Don't yeah. let her fool you. It's She had such a good experience that time that Kara was her bodyguard last season that she's really hoping to like reconnect. She did kind of like it. So, <laughs> so uh, I will give Andrea a, a 12 out of 10 Fair. for her effort because it was like it was very nice. It wasn't super outside her, her normal comfort zone, though. Right. So. Right. That's fair. Thus concludes our uh, <laughs> rate my outfit session. Right. <laughs> that was beautiful. And thank you for sharing this analysis. <laughs> well, that wraps up our episode of Supergirl's Attic. We will have another episode next week. And the next episode is titled Still I Rise, which is exciting. Yes. And we're assuming will be a reference to the very famous poem mm -hmm. by Maya Angelou. And then just general announcements. Please feel free to send us comments or questions at Supergirl's Attic on Tumblr, Twitter, or Instagram. And mm -hmm. if you feel so inclined, please leave us a ratings or reviews on your favorite podcasting app. We love reading them. Yeah. And thanks for listening. <laughs>